Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Parliament has now returned from its summer recess and the coming months will be dominated by one thing, Brexit. There are so many other challenges and issues facing the country as well that I am declaring this week's podcast a Brexit-free zone. The negotiations are ongoing, but until they progress even a tiny bit, there seems little point in more talks about talks. Anyone caught using the B word on this week's episode will be punished with this Brexit siren, uh, which is also available as a stand-in for Big Ben should you need one. Joining me this week on the panel to explain why there are loads of other things that we should be worried about as well are Jenny Russell, the Times columnist, on the benefit cuts that are only now starting to bite. Fellow columnist Ian Martin asks why we're losing our religion. But first, Chris Smythe, the Times health editor, and why the NHS winter warning gets earlier every year. The bank holiday beach towels have barely been rolled up and already we're facing warnings of an NHS winter crisis without a £350 million bailout. NHS providers, which represents hospitals, as they're struggling to cope with the relentless rises in elderly patients as their budget increases taper off and extra money for social care fails to reduce bed blocking. The group warns patients will suffer unless extra money for more beds is found now. Now, Chris, am I cynical for thinking that every couple of months somebody puts out a press release just saying the NHS needs more money? Does... Is it a never... Some, somebody does. Somebody you does. Whichever case, who is, who is asking it's a diff- it yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and why. So is it more significant that NHS providers are saying it? So the NHS providers are, are more politically savvy than some uh, NHS organisations. They do recognise there is a world outside the NHS. The NHS is such a vast, sprawling thing that many uh, people exist solely within it and can't see the wider political landscape. And I think NHS providers is more able to do that. And I think what's going on here, there's a, there's a practical and a political reason why they've issued this now. The practical reason is a, is a good one, is that we, summer is normally a quieter period for hospitals, um, but they are essentially full. Um, they haven't had the period of respite that they usually have over the summer. And last week, regulators warned that they were very concerned about very high and dangerously high bed occupancy and said, we're not quite sure how we're going to cope with winter. So from that point of view, they, uh, they are not alone in saying we're a bit, you know, there is a re- real reason for concern. Uh, the political reason uh, is that I think they have read the moon music coming from the election, all the talk about austerity is over, um, and they think, well, if there is going to be some cash flash, we want to make sure that we have got our hand up for some of it. So they're sort of probing the Chancellor's defences a little bit, saying, you know, how, how is he going to resist this kind of, this kind of call uh, and seeing what the reaction is. My sense is that the issue of the NHS didn't play a massive part in the general election and isn't a big, it used to be the issue that particularly the Tories struggled on and they were constantly having to, you know, David Cameron's, I'll cut the deficit, not the NHS. Has it diminished as a political issue? And does that mean what flows from that is they get less money? I, I think that it, what, what tends to happen in elections is the debate about the NHS bears very little relation to what is actually going on in, in the <laughs> NHS. Uh, or, or indeed any other area which is <laughs> indeed, debated in Indeed, election. indeed. Um, and it's true, it wasn't sort of one of the big headline issues, but if you look at the you know the public concerns polling, it is you know up there now, probably, I think, number one, uh, just ahead of Im- immigration. So it is a, a powerful political issue. Whether that plays through to demands at Westminster for more money is a... A separate point, and indeed, until recently, many in the NHS were saying we do want more money, but social care probably needs to get it first. There's always um, uh, a long list of people who, who think they should have more money. Jenny, what do you make of this? I mean, it's, it, the picture that Chris paints is particularly grim. That if they're already at winter levels in the summer, what happens in the coming winter? 
It's undoubtedly true. I mean, the NHS hasn't got enough money, and the reason that it hasn't is partly demographic. We're living longer, and we need a lot more care. It's partly political, and for that, Labour bears a huge share of the responsibility because so many hospitals are carrying vast amounts of debt because of the PFI programme under which they were rebuilt, which Gordon Brown brought in, which has committed so many health authorities to paying enormous sums, um, paying back and essentially interest payments. Um, so, so they haven't got enough money to operate and the Tories are pretending that they can manage on less and they can't. And the fourth reason why it's such a problem is that actually the NHS itself is, although it's madly underfunded and many of its staff are fantastic, extraordinarily inefficient. And it's got very few incentives to be efficient. So that when you turn up and you discover that the person on the reception desk has no idea that the chemotherapy patient arrived two hours ago and is waiting for their chemo because they should have gone to some other desk and nobody told them, then it's no one's responsibility to fix that. And the staff tell you rather complacently, oh, this happens all the time. And you say, why does it happen all the time? And they look at you blankly as if you are describing the weather. And... The problem with the system is that it doesn't know how to fix itself. And although many people have tried, it still seems to work in the same semi-broken fashion. I think that's that's absolutely right. It's striking just how long Britain has been has spent trying to reform healthcare. I mean, this this goes right back to the Griffiths report in the 1980s, which first proposed a series of market-driven reforms. You had Ken Clark as health secretary, Virginia Bossomley's reforms, the Blair government's experience, and Blair having begun as a sceptic about reform, then becoming a great enthusiast for it, and then the shambles which the Cameron government made of health reform. So you're talking really about three decades worth of the political establishment excluding Jeremy Corbyn and the, and the far left, understanding that, as, as, as Jenny put it, it has these problems. And the root problem, I think, is it's... Uh, and what, possibly why um, all reforms have failed or have not been popular with the public is that what is required is the introduction of some kind of market mechanism, not as some sort of beastly, nasty um, proposal, but simply to make scarce resources um, go further. That's how markets work in terms of food or travel. Now, the moment that anyone tries to say that, uh, as Blair discovered and as, um, as, as Cameron discovered, that is instantly turned into privatising the NHS, which is, which is the simplest and easiest way for an opposition party to label a government as uncaring and fundamentally unpatriotic. So governments spend their time, or the current government, will just try and avoid it. I suspect we'll find some chunk of money at some point uh, in the autumn and, uh, and hope as it, as it has in the last few winters, that the winter crisis doesn't really uh, appear. And Labour will make hay with it if it does, and as they will with student fees and with welfare, all against the backdrop of that thing which we're not allowed to mention, <laughs> even the European Union, and I won't say the word. <laughs> well, on the except, subject... Except it's all your fault, Ian. Yeah. That thing we're not allowed to mention. Well, I, well accept, carry on. I accept that everything is <laughs> my fault. <laughs> I would just say two, two things in response to, to that without disagreeing with it. One is that, that nowhere else has cracked this. I mean, leave aside the disastrous mm. American system. Lots of other countries have tried this. They all have pretty similar problems in how to deal with an ageing population, how to pay for it, how to structure a system. Who's but, doing it? 
It's a very hard question to answer, and it, it does depend who you answer. There are several international rankings. Some put the NHS on top, which people are slightly sceptical about because they are more measures of input than output. Some put the NHS in the middle of the pack, put the Scandinavian, sometimes they put the the, mm. the, the Dutch, sometimes they put the, the, the Swiss. I don't think we can say conclusively anyone knows how to do this properly. But, uh, we, but we are the only country in the world which which somehow propagates this myth that we're the only country that, well, has, that, a pro- that has a health service. That was the only I mean, thing no, I was no going to say. No other country it's on earth has ever made the, the NHS as a concept the centrepiece of its opening. The brand of the games. NHS I mean, does this is, this in is some ways hold back reform. You know, in other countries, if someone, you know, says your life is saved, you say, this hospital saved my life, this doctor was so brilliant, they, you know, they saved me. Whereas in Britain, we tend to say, the NHS saved my life. And that means if people have had that experience when they've, you know, killed over of a heart attack, when they go to their GP and wait for four hours and they've lost their notes, they think, never mind, it's the NHS, it saved my life. And in, in a way, some people within the system say people are too grateful for the NHS and they don't demand that, Im- that improvement that, that could happen. It, it, we're going to come on later on and talk about religion, but it is a sort of religion you know the way it appeared at the center of the olympic games opening ceremony and it was you know it was an incredibly powerful image but we didn't do that for the department for education which is also very it's a a very important public service it's a very strange british habit which completely baffles um people from abroad i mean to, to listen to us talk about the NHS saving our lives. You would think that the Italians, the French, the Spanish, the Germans don't actually have hospitals or doctors. They get ill and that's it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and on the whole, they, 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 they do better. I mean, they're on, on most measures of mortality, including cancer, they have better treatment. I think it's undoubtedly clear that the NHS just does not have enough money and the government is, is pretending that it does. And they're going to have to put the money in. It is equally true that it's very inefficient. But I think the reason that people are so profoundly grateful is that, for instance, when you look at what's happened in America over the last year and you look at the absolute terror with which people have to look at any kind of health problem because Mm. it can bankrupt them and ruin their lives and destroy everything, then we look at that and think, well, thank goodness, the one thing we never have to worry about when we get ill is, can we survive this financially? But then we do have that tendency to look at it as uh, as being binary, that there are two choices. There's yes. the NHS as currently constituted and there's, there's America. ghastly American. We do look yeah. to America rather than to Europe, and which, again, we won't go any further on that Before I put my hand on the buzzer, let's move on uh, to another massive public sector reform issue uh, which used to again used to dominate politics and elections uh, an awful lot but uh, didn't this year and definitely isn't uh, a big part of the debate at the moment this is Jenny Russell so I just thought I'd bring some obscure topic to everyone's attention, um, which is the rollout of universal credit, which is gathering speed across the country now. Until this point, only five job centres a month have been implementing universal credit. From October, it's going to be 50. The trouble with this rollout is that in several ways, it's going to be pretty catastrophic. Universal credit is designed so that new claimants aren't entitled to any money at all for the first seven days of their claim. And then they have to wait at least six weeks before any benefits reach their bank accounts. And that's insane. It's creating fear and it pitches people into debt or indeed into hunger just when they're most vulnerable. It's actually indefensible and it's a policy that needs to be reversed. Universal credit is taking a whole load of benefits which the Department of Work and Pensions uh, dishes out. And one of the problems has been that because they are so many, they're all administered through different schemes. The idea is you roll them all into one. It'll be updated live based on your earnings. 
and therefore it's more dynamic and immediately responsive. So the theory sounds like it's not a terrible idea. This is from your point, your criticism is of the, the, the rules of well, universal I think, I think the theory was great. I mean, it's absolutely bonkers at the moment that if you become unemployed or if you need to, to um, claim tax credits because you don't earn enough and you've got a number of children, you've got to apply to four different organisations and they've all got, whether it's Job Seekers Allowance or Housing Benefit or Child Tax Credits, they've all got different rules, they've all got different criteria, you've got to fill in forms over and over again. It was a, such a good idea to take the question of supporting people who are either unemployed or who don't earn enough to support their families and say, let's just make this simple and let's make sure that work pays. That was the original concept. The problem, as always in these things, is the implementation. And one of the things that is absolutely disastrous is the idea that you will, as a matter of policy, make people wait six weeks. And in some cases, according to the Citizen Advice Bureau, um, I think a third of the people that have have come to them and they're getting about 11% of all universal credit claimants coming to them for help. Something like a third are, are waiting um, six weeks or more and perhaps another third are waiting up to 10 weeks. Now, these are people who, by definition, haven't got enough money. That is why they are turning to the system for help. And the system is designed to pitch them into a catastrophic state of having not enough money to live on. And it can't be sensible. Particularly if they are in the position of going on to an unemployment benefit, they're most likely to get back into work almost immediately, but they're unlikely to do that if they haven't got any money to get to a, an interview or prepare or apply for jobs and, well, and all that sort of thing. in a state of panic about how do you pay your rent yeah. and how do you pay for your children's school lunches and all those absolutely practical things. Yeah. The extraordinary thing about this policy is that about two-fifths of working adults have got less than £100 in savings, and in areas like deprived areas like Wales and Northern Ireland and the North East and Yorkshire... Half of all adults have got less than £100 in savings. So you're talking about people who haven't got the resources to say, oh, I can just live for six weeks. Ian, welfare reform was a big, for the sort of Cameron Osborne project. I mean, mm. Osborne's message, if not explicitly, but implicitly, was you couldn't cut welfare enough, you know, if in doubt, if you needed to raise some money or raise some political capital. You went after yes. the DWP. Constant clashes between him and... Ian Duncan Smith, which eventually led to IDS um, resigning, but because of the speed of these things been implemented, it's only now we start to see the reality of probably what was quite an excitable party conference announcement four, five, six years ago. Well, it's been a, a seven-year process, and as you say, the um, the defence that Ian Duncan Smith would offer, valid or not, is that he fought Osborne all the way, and that the man now transformed as editor of the Evening Standard complaining about <laughs> everything that happens um, in government. Actually, quite a lot of it uh, can be rooted to, uh, back to some of the decisions that he took um, when he was Chancellor. Um, IDS would say that he fought for as much money as he could um, he to smooth the implementation. We, we know about that. Precisely. But, as, but listening to Jenny talk about it, I think I can begin to see how if just a couple of things go wrong for the government this uh, autumn and winter, it's really quite possible that they're headed for something like a winter of discontent. If you combine welfare with what's potentially going to happen in the NHS and the B word, which I won't, um, which I won't <laughs> mention, 
you have the ingredients there of something really politically explosive, particularly when the country is, I think, really quite angry or mystified that Theresa May is still there and still promising to go on and on and on until 2022. I mean, really, I think most people will say, um, give a strength in response to <laughs> in response to that. So I think. I think that is the, the the story of why the government has got itself into this position on welfare reform is a, a bit like healthcare attempts to reform welfare stretch back not just to 2010 but stretch right back into the um, 1980s new labor had its go it's a very very difficult process to manage but I'm just I, I think the problem that Theresa May is going to have is that the small group that effectively runs the country around um, her while she is almost a, a phantom prime minister. So that would be Damien Green, de facto deputy prime minister, the two Gavins, Gavin Barwell um, and, um, and Gavin Williamson, the chief whip, have been running things while there's no one around, while the media's away over the on summer. holiday over yeah, the yeah. summer. Parliament has been away. And you can just sense, I was back very briefly at the... Um, around the commons yesterday people are now back gossip is flowing uh, events are about to happen and i think uh, it hadn't really been on my radar but I, I think jenny's absolutely right the implementation of universal credit has the potential to be really quite explosive and, and mps coming back from the summer will have spent if not all of their summer but some of their summer talking to the people precisely the people being affected by this the, the key thing about this is that fifty thousand new claimants a month are going to be going onto universal credit and as it starts being rolled out on a large scale from October, as people become unemployed, that's going to hit the Christmas period. And the idea that you lose your job or that you find yourself in a position where you're in a lower paying one, and suddenly you hit this enormous financial black hole. I mean, people are going to be in desperate straits. In some ways it's quite surprising that Theresa May has not paid more attention to this with her social justice agenda. I think she's got agenda. something else to think uh, you know, about. She, she's, <laughs> but she, despite that, I she's made a play by saying, I'm I a social agree. justice prime minister, I believe in racial yes. equality, I believe in improving mental health. You'd think this is an area where she would want to, to, to make her mark. And I don't think is she just overlooked attention. it? Is she thinking that it's too difficult, I'm not going to touch it? Because I, you can easily see Jeremy Corbyn making quite a lot out of this. I mean, Labour yeah. has its own problems with, with welfare. But as you say, it doesn't take too many families not being able to afford Christmas because yeah. of Theresa May to really, you know, hit the sweet spot. For and Osborne is the person who extended the period before which he could claim. It used to be three days. He extended it to a week. But then whoever designed universal credit, and I'd like to know what the political pressures were, then deliberately created it so that you got paid monthly in arrears, but you had to wait an extra week at the end before the money hit your bank account. Now, for most people um, in this country who are low paid, most of them are paid fortnightly and a lot of them are paid weekly. Do you mean so people, people who aren't heirs to wallpaper fortunes? Or indeed even vicar's daughters. So, so you can't suddenly, and and so suddenly you're, you're not accustomed to budgeting on that time scale. And you may, from your last job, have only had enough money to live on for a week. And suddenly... You're, you're expected to live on literally fresh air. You can get some crisis loans, but not many people are told about them. But what nobody will give you is the money that will actually that you're actually entitled to over that period. Well, those battles between uh, Ian Duggan Smith and George Osborne were battles sort of between political calculation and sort of moral crusade. And what often gets lost in that is the practical details of, of, of how the to human make it beings. Work. And and I, I suspect from my memory of the three days to seven days delay in being able to start claiming. That was literally a case of trying to find a bit more, squeeze a bit more money out of the, of the poorest of people the in the country. DWP mm. budget. 
Yeah. Because whenever there was a, pre- you know, the, the famous balancing the budgets by uh, 2015, every time that uh, target slipped, they went back to DWP and said, we need to find more money. And in the end, IDS famously um, uh, had a fit and resigned. And Osborne's whole view was that cutting welfare is so politically popular that you never pay a price. And I think that the country may have reached a point where it starts to think that's, that's not the case. And, and crucially, the people being affected by it are going to pay a price. There might be a long lag on it. Yes, because the other point about this is it's not just the very poor. It's By the time Universal Credit has finished its rollout in 2020, 2022, then half the country's families with children will be being supported by it in the form of tax credits. So we're not just talking about you know, benefits, scroungers in Tory parlance. We're talking about everybody. Was another fascinating and moving one to, uh, to keep an eye on. It's enough to make you look to the skies and pray to a higher force. Uh, which brings us on to uh, Ian Martin and why we're losing our religion. Alastair Campbell famously interrupted someone who was questioning Tony Blair, interviewing him, to say, we, meaning New Labour, we don't do God. And a new survey just out suggests that now this is actually right, and there's 53% of people saying they have no religion whatsoever. Politics and faith rarely mix well, but I'm just really interested in the subject. What does this mean for the country and for the people running it? This... Struck me as interesting, and I wrote about it in the Red Box email, partly because I wanted to have a day off writing about the B word. Um, <laughs> but also, it's sort of... Which is a religion in itself for some It is a religion people. in itself for some people. And it can get, yeah, in the same way that religion is the source of all conflict, I think. This is probably right. Um, uh, but it struck me as interesting because, you know, it, what it tells you about the state of the nation, and particularly at a time when we've got a vicar's daughter who's the Prime Minister... Mm. And in the last couple of months, we've had someone resign from, as a leader of a major political party, Tim Fowen, mm. specifically blaming the fact of his own faith being... He said it was incompatible with being the leader of a political party. It might actually have just been incompatible with being the leader of his political party, which is... Yeah, I mean, I, my, my observation would be that religion or faith has, play, has played a much bigger... Um, role in British politics for for longer than people think. We're all familiar with the idea that 18th and 19th century um, politics was dominated by questions of the church and by Ireland uh, to a large extent, as, as well as questions like free trade. But we tend to think that we became a secular um, country at some sort of vague point in the late 1960s, early 1970s. But that's really not the case in terms of politics you look at thatcherism it is rooted in her religious experience you look at the background of someone like callahan you look at um, tony blair who was um almost messianic when it came to his when it came to his leadership campaign stood in front of stained glass i've always thought i've always thought it contributed to his lack of a cool head around um iraq in particular and a few other decisions and then you had this strange experience with cameron where he was the classic tory of the shires and famously described his um, his his Christianity as being, was it a little like the reception for Magic FM in the Chilterns? Yes, in that it, it, it comes, comes and goes. goes. It comes and goes a bit. <laughs> um, and then now we have Theresa May, famously Vicar's daughter. So it has conditioned and shaped our politics uh, much more profoundly uh, than um, than I think we often recognise. I'm a complete hypocrite on this in that I don't go to church i'm agnostic at best but i 
simply raise the question, and I don't know the answer to this, which is that if we are becoming a fully secular society, what are we going to replace religion with? And there's a huge argu argument about what that should be. Now, some people would say that should be some vague, ill-defined set of liberal values and things we can sign up to. But I think that overlooks, um, and Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi, gave a fascinating speech on this recently uh, in New York, which I really recommend people, uh, people reading in full, in which he says that once you give up that religious component entirely, you're giving up more than you think. And that a lot of the stories that we tell ourselves that have about what kind of society we are, about duty to others, about obligation, we might not be practising, uh, but they have their roots in, in religious stories and in the Judeo-Christian um, tradition. So as I say, I'm a complete hypocrite on it in terms of not necessarily believing myself, but I think it is a bigger shift in our society and our politics than we appreciate. Jenny, what did you make of it when you saw that, that more than half of people now say they don't have religion or faith? Well, like Ian, I'm completely torn on this one because I was brought up as an agnostic, but on both sides by parents who had turned against the church because um, their parents were ministers of the church and they both had lived through experiences which they thought showed the appalling hypocrisy of religion. In my father's case, it was going to help repair Nazi Germany directly after the war and um, thinking that nothing in his faith um, could justify what people had done, they, that no God could exist in that way. And in my mother's case, it was being brought up by a minister of the church who wholly supported apartheid in apartheid South Africa. And she ended up being a rebel against it. So both of them felt that religion um, in many ways excused people from feeling that they had a duty to um, fight for a better world now that they just thought never mind you know, sometime far in the future um, heaven and hell will, will, will sort out um, what's right and what's wrong but on the other hand I find myself I've always been drawn to churches I don't believe but I wish I did I think that they that um, the Bible provides a kind of metaphorical basis by which to live and I think it's important to feel that there is something in people's lives which is more important than just one's own selfish satisfactions and the facts are about religious people is that they give more to charity are more involved in their communities are happier live longer and take part in civic life even when it's not religious on a higher scale and um, many more of them do it than the people who are agnostic much as one might wish to say as I might wish to do, since I am an agnostic myself, that humanist values are just as good as religious ones. Chris, one of the things that struck me when I was looking at what leading politicians now had said about their faith was you've got sort of uh, David Cameron, to some extent, where he's made slightly playing down their faith. But then when Jeremy Corbyn is asked, well, you're an atheist, aren't you? He's, he's embarrassed about saying that he is an atheist. And he says... His interview that I saw, he went. He said, "Well, I've been to synagogues and mosques and churches and lots of other religious buildings, and I like all faiths, and that's all I'm going to tell you." So we've got this sort of weird and thing. And all agnostics. Yeah, well, it's, it's very British. Yeah, so, I mean, you could you could make a historical argument that you know part of the concept of Britishness was founded on being a bit uh, embarrassed about religion after the civil wars and the sort of enthusiasm it was called then the country ripping itself apart over religion. The idea that we should all be a bit cooler about this and turn I it into something. I don't think 19th like, century history quite bears that out. The Oxford movement and all the rest. Of yes, it but the Oxford movement was a sort of a, a made against establ the establishment, which they considered a bit too wishy wishy washy. Uh, 
Uh, and of course, religion did remain a, a very powerful force. And although sort of church going tailed off in the 19th century, I don't think you could really call that secularism when, you know, the, the language of national life remained saturated in religious imagery, at least until the, the 60s. And uh, many of our leaders are growing up, still growing up steeped in that. And I think many of Jeremy Corbyn's supporters are perhaps the first generation to have grown up uh, in a world where their parents did not bring them up with any form of religion and, and perhaps that is an overlooked factor in, in why their attitudes are, are quite different and perhaps what they see in him is some sort of powerful redemptive narrative that they cannot get or do not want to get from, from traditional religion. He really is the Messiah. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and what about, um, we have this situation when the Archbishop of Canterbury or somebody like that says something on a matter of government policy. It might be, I don't know, food banks or even wealth they're just talking about and there tends to be sort of uproar what what on earth is this person doing commenting on a matter of politics is that a fair criticism should should church leaders get more involved in politics well i think they should i mean i think rabbi Sachs or 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 the archbishop or any any leaders who say that they're appealing to some sort of higher moral plane i think that's it's good to be able to think and different levels about politics. I think the other thing to bear in mind about this is that in Britain, I think we're going against the tide. Most of the world is getting more religious, isn't exactly. that right? Yes. Uh, and, and the danger Some is also yeah. is that if, if, if we are not very interested in religion in this country, we, we might start being under the delusion that's less important to other people, when in fact it's absolutely critical. It could be part of our misjudgment to the rest of the world. Also potentially quite a lot of evidence that it has an impact on birth rates, which which matters um, economically a lot um, in the long run. But I think the, the reason that they should feel free to get involved is that people like Justin Welby uh, or Rabbi Sachs deal in uh, complexity and in other st understanding other people's points of view. They are, by de definition, careful, sophisticated, respectful, smart individuals. And when you consider what's happening to our politics at the moment and to our public d discourse with social media, increasingly aggressive approach to, um, to politics, couldn't we do with possibly a bit more of that? That seems like a good note to end on, uh, particularly as we've broken the golden wall of dinner parties of discussing politics and religion and nobody's fallen out. And nobody's had anything to eat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Time for this week. I've not been able to use the Brexit buzzer once at all, uh, which means that the panel were very well behaved. I'm afraid we probably will have to return to it in future episodes. If you've got any issues that you think we should be discussing, then get in touch with us, redbox at thetimes.co.uk 
or find us on Twitter at Times Red Box and we're on Facebook as well. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device where it arrives every week and sign up to my morning email briefing. It's back every morning telling everything. But for now, from Chris Smythe, Jenny Russell, Ian Martin and me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.